Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 to 7. And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in earth above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children of the sins of the parents to the third or the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commands. Well, try and picture the scene. You are 18 years old. You've just arrived in a brand new city. Everything is new. The CU is new. The church is new. Uh, And in all of that newness, somewhere in CU or in church, you catch the eye of someone who is really handsome or beautiful. You keep them in the corner of your eye, and as you see them engaging with other people, you see that there is, there is a kindness and a gentleness in the way that they relate to older people and younger people. They've got that lovely combination of joy and fun and devotion to Jesus. What is one of the first things you want to know? What's your name? Now, you might be nervous to ask that question. <laughs> I was before I got to know Hannah. You might have a friend that needs to find out the person's name for you. But what you really want is for that person to share their name with you so it forms the beginning of a new friendship. Because we all know in our human relationships with one another that as you begin to get to know one another, as you share your name, that's often that important personal first step, you begin to get drawn into a relationship with somebody else. In one sense, it's not overstating it to say that sharing your name is a gift. It's something of an invitation. You're, you're asking somebody else to begin to become a friend with you. Now, if we know all of that in our own personal friendships, how much more important is it when it comes to God, who has graciously revealed his name to us? You think about the many, many ways in which the parallel just breaks down when you try and think about who God is. There's nobody else who can tell you God's name. There's no CU or playground of other gods who've all known him for years and they can tell you what his name is. There is only one God. And you and I can only know his name because he has chosen to reveal himself to us. And that is the amazing news of the Christian message. You may be here for the first time. It may even be the very first time you've ever been in a church And there are thousands of questions in your head right now. One of them is going to be something like, can I really know this God that we have just been thinking about for the whole of our service? Can I know that sense of refuge and hope that Ollie was showing us in that psalm? Can I sing to a God whose name I not only know, 
but whose name reveals something to me of his character? And the answer to all of those, Christian, all of those messages in the Christian faith is yes. You can have a personal relationship with the God who has revealed himself to you in a way that you could otherwise never know. There is one God who is the great creator who has bridged the divide to all of creation and shown us who he is. Shown us how we can know him, how we can be forgiven by him, and how we can worship him with all of our lives. And all of that is wrapped up in the third commandment. Uh, If you've been brought up to know the commandments, or perhaps even if you've regularly heard the commandments in church or in school or Sunday school, you might think commandment number three is the easy one. Because we're the kind of Christian religious types. And we don't swear using God's name. So we're good. Commandment four, please. But the commandment is so much bigger than that. This commandment is about reverencing and honoring and worshipping God and relating to him in every area of life, recognizing who he is and who we are. And I want to show you that by looking at three aspects of God's name this morning. Firstly, God's name reveals who he is. God's name reveals who he is. For, for us, when we come to read our Bibles, perhaps especially the sections that we read Sunday by Sunday, where there's a big gap in between the last time we read it, it's easy, easy for us to distinguish and divide the different parts of the Bible. So a little while ago, we were in the first chapters of Exodus, and that was all exciting history, and that's quite gripping. And now, Sunday by Sunday, we're in this law section. And most people don't get very excited about the law sections. And in our heads, we distinguish all the exciting adventure stuff from the boring legal bits. That's not a distinction that Moses would have made. As Moses was taught by God on the top of Mount Sinai, all of these laws... Moses' mind would have immediately gone back to the very first time that he met God. If you flip back to Exodus chapter 3, I want you to set the scene for how Moses would have heard the third commandment. Uh, if you weren't with us when we looked at that, there's Moses. He's, he's wandering in the desert, not lost and confused, but trying to find pasture for his flock. He's not out searching for God. He's just in the desert. And then he sees something that's weird. A burning bush, not weird, it's the desert. A burning bush that's not burning up, that's weird. So he goes over to this bush, still not expecting that he's going to have any experience of God. And God wonderfully reveals himself to Moses and says the most incredible things. He says, Moses, I'm going to send you back to Egypt to rescue my people. And... We're going to bring all of those people, multi-millions, to this mountain and you're going to worship me. And after that, we're going to take you into a land of abundance and plenty where I'm going to clear the way for you to enjoy a good land. And Moses is thinking, this is unbelievable. But then he's got this really important question, chapter 3 and verse 13. Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? 
It's a fair question for Moses. Because the Israelites by this point have been in Egypt for 400 years. And the Egyptians have got more gods than you could throw a stick at. So Moses is anticipating their question. Who should I say I am a spokesman for? Here's God's answer in verse 14. I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. The name you should call me from generation to generation. Now, when we looked at that passage a number of weeks ago, we saw that the name is a play on a Hebrew verb, the I am verb. What God is Tying together in his own name is a description of who he is. He is a God outside of time. There is no beginning to God. He has no birthday. There is no end to God. He will have no died date. He is a God who depends on nothing. In one sense, there's that visual parallel with what's going on in the fire. Because in the bush... The fire is sustained without needing to consume any part of the bush. God is ever being, ever acting, and all self-sufficient. And as God revealed himself to Moses that first time at Sinai, we see something of the relationship between his name and who he is. Now, in between Exodus 3 and Exodus 20, Moses has seen God prove his name to be true. Think of the demonstration of power that God showed over all of the other gods in Egypt. There was a stage where perhaps they could imitate and mimic, but soon there was no way they could keep up, for there are no other gods like the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But that's not the only thing that Moses and the Israelites have now seen. They've also seen that the Yahweh, that I am, resembled by the Yohevahe in Hebrew, just four consonants. That one true living God makes promises that he keeps. It's the great hope that he revealed to Moses at the burning bush. I'm the God of Abraham, meaning I made promises to Abraham, and I'm now going to fulfill some of those promises that I made to Abraham by making more promises to you, Moses. And you're going to see the fulfillment of those promises such that you and every generation of believers thereafter, you're going to have this growing back catalogue of faithfulness of God to his word. So it's not only that his name is connected to his being, his name is also connected to his character. So when, back in chapter 20, When God then commands Moses and all of God's people not to misuse the name of the Lord your God. That is not a simple bare command about one four-letter word that you're not allowed to use. It's a description that is richer and fuller. It might be helpful to think about some concentric circles, uh, right at the heart of which is the word Lord, the I am word, that in Hebrew is those four consonants. And we're going to think about how precious that word is. But 
but the name that is being referred to here in verse 7 is, is more than that. It's encompassing all of God's names. And as we work through the Bible, you'll see lots of them. There's not just one. God reveals himself to us as, as El Shaddai. He is the Lord Almighty. He reveals himself to us as El Roy, meaning the Lord who sees me. He tells us that he is El Elyon. He is a great one. And, and on and on it goes. There are so many wonderful names of God. And there's a right sense in which we need to see this commandment as including all of them. But each of them are also describing something more of the character and the, the person of God. Which means ultimately this commandment is telling us that we are to be careful of how we refer to God himself. In all of his glory and majesty and character. That is why when Jesus taught us how to pray. He said we are to pray our father who art in heaven. Hallowed be your name. Your name. Jesus wants all of his followers to plead with the God of heaven and earth that in every circumstance and season of life, the majesty, the glory, the person, the character, the faithfulness, the covenant-keeping goodness of God will be lifted high in all places by all people. See, something of how big this commandment is. You know, lots of people have got titles and um, descriptions for their job. And in many cases, it describes something of who they are in terms of their authority or their position or, or their place in an organization. I was um, having a conversation with one of you a little while ago, and you reminded me that in your context, there are so many different layers and positions within your organization that people will actually introduce themselves by the acronym of their title rather than by their name, just because there's so many different stratas within the organization. And it seems that the only important bit is that you know where everybody fits. And we get something of that. But if I said to you, president, does that tell you anything about the character of the person who holds that office? Should do. But it doesn't. And there are so many titles and positions that people might have attached to their name that actually tell you nothing about the person's character and their nature and their temperament, what it would be like to know them or anything about who they are. Only God's name does that. And we only know it because he's graciously revealed his name to us. Perhaps you've been a Christian for so long, you've lost sight of the gift of knowing the name of the God who is unspeakably holy. But he's revealed it to us, not only so that we would know how to speak to him, but how in the temperament and the demeanor and our attitude, we should come before this God. That's how precious God's name is and what a privilege it is for us to know. And because he reveals it to us, secondly, God's name mustn't be 
misuse. That's what our translation says in, in our English. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. And again, for lots of people, not only in the church but outside the church, all that means is don't swear using God's name and you're good. But the Hebrew's bigger than that. And, and the commandment, as we are seeing, is bigger than that. The Hebrew, it's a bit clunky, but a more literal translation would be something like, you shall not bear up or lift up the name of the Lord your God. And then it's a bit tricky to capture. Something like, in emptiness or in falsehood. And that's bits that we lose when we say you shall not misuse. There's these two aspects to the commandment that God gave to Moses that help us understand the breadth of it. There's something about lifting it up and there's another aspect of using it in a way that strips it of the depth of its meaning or lacking the integrity of the name. There's there's a reference to emptiness and falsehood. So we're We're being commanded here to think about how we use God's name and not only Yahweh, but all of the names of God because all of them are a description of his being such that in every moment, in every interaction, we are reverencing, honoring, and worshiping the God who has revealed himself to us. Now, let's think about that specifically. And in many ways, we could spend a whole series thinking about how we should use God's name. But I want to think about four practical examples to try and earth it for you. And then, God willing, this week you can think about other ways as well. First one is the most obvious one that we don't want to avoid, which is that swearing is serious. To use this name that we have been thinking about as just a casual expletive is horrendous. Picture the person that you love the most. Husband, wife, mum, dad, child. Don't pick your children. You know what I mean. Just pick somebody you love. Can you imagine a catastrophe happening in your life? And in that moment, you shouted that person's name out of disgust, and bitterness and rage. We don't do that with human beings that we know. How much more serious is it to take upon our lips the name that has only been revealed to us by a God who gave it to show us who he is and dish it out because we're angry or just mad. Under the old covenant, someone who blasphemed was put to death. Leviticus 24 verse 16 says, anyone who uses the name of the Lord blasphemy, uh, blasphemously is to be put to death. The entire assembly must stone them, whether foreigner or native born. When they use the name blasphemously, They are to be put to death. Now, we don't live under a theocratic government anymore. We don't live out and enforce God's laws in the same way anymore. 
But don't for a moment think that the God who is unchanging considers his name any less important today than he has ever done. That's why the commandment says, end of verse 7, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. So for all of the grace that we know as Christians, we must never, ever, ever presume and take upon our lips a name as precious as his as a swear word. Now you might have grown up in a, in a, in a background or even in a church community where people didn't think twice about doing that. And that's why we keep coming back to God's word and examining what it says so that our, our north star is not our past experience and whether that was good, bad, or unhelpful. It's God's word. But I wonder whether perhaps more of us have grown up in a context, whether that's in the workplace, whether it's in church, wherever it might be, where people may not have used God as a swear word, but very deliberately used any and every possible derivative that they could to skirt as close to the line as they could without actually saying that one word. Now, there'll be examples in your head. I don't want us to be legalistic Pharisees. Examples like, oh my gosh, or crikey. I don't want us to become one of those communities that has a long list of things that nobody's allowed to say. But neither do I want us to miss the seriousness of the third commandment. We need to do both. We need to see how every word that we speak is a reflection of the God who has made us and a testimony to the people who are around us. And that might mean that something that you can say in one context isn't something that you say in another. So we need to keep thinking What am I being understood as saying? And if there is ever any possible misunderstanding, I simply don't say that. That's the first thing. Secondly, invoking God's name in promises we don't mean to keep is sinful. Now, let me just trace this for you. Um, When we go through the Old Testament, we're going to see that God builds on the commandments and the brevity, in one sense, of what he gives us in Exodus 20 all the way through the Old Testament. So you get to Leviticus chapter 19, um, and God uses this third commandment as the foundation for wider laws about how his people are to make oaths before one another. And when you get to Leviticus 19... Um, God commanded the Israelites, do not swear falsely by my name, and so profane the name of your God, I am the Lord. Now over time, the Jews distorted that and twisted it in all sorts of ways. And for some, what they did was they simply ignored the commandment completely. That's what God is saying to the people through Jeremiah in Jeremiah's day. Although they say, speaking of some of the Jews, although they say, as surely as the Lord lives, meaning making an oath, a promise before God, still they're swearing falsely. 
So that's one group of Jews. But then there's others who've developed this enormously elaborate system for making an oath using any possible name other than God's with lip service to this commandment. So you get to Jesus' day, and there are Jews making oaths, swearing on heaven, on earth, on the heavenly city of Jerusalem, on, on anything they could possibly think of. They would swear on basically anything they could without using God's name. Now, why were they doing that? It's because they wanted to do at least two things at the same time. Firstly, they wanted to assure whomever they were making this promise to that they really meant it, that it was really serious. That's why they're referring to things that mattered to them as Jewish people. But at the same time, the hypocrisy that Jesus exposes shows us that at least some of them used anything else to swear by because they had no intention of keeping their promise. So on the one hand, they're referring to things that matter so that you think it's really serious. At the same time, and on the other hand, they're not going to swear by the ultimate authority because actually they have no intention of keeping their promise. Now, into all of that mess, we need to see how serious it is to use God's name at all. When Jesus was speaking to all of these people who were using any possible anything to swear by, he says, just stop it. Because the problem is that you are not being sincere in what you say. So Jesus tells the, the Jews he was speaking to in Matthew 5, all you need to say is simply yes or no. Stop this elaborate system that somehow means that you can make something sound serious when you've no intention of saying it sincerely. But when we look at the rest of the scriptures, there is a clear pattern, I think, where believers can, where necessary, use God's name to swear an oath to show how serious something is. Now, we still do that today in some circumstances. We do it when we get married. If you've had to give testimony in court, you may have sworn an oath in that way. I think the key thing as we go through the trajectory of the Bible is that we would do so less, actually. I think the pattern that Jesus is setting for us is that we are to be such trustworthy people that our yes is yes and our no is no. For surely when we get to heaven, people won't be promising on God's name. But when we do need to do so, we need to see how serious it is to invoke the name of the God of heaven and earth. Another way we need to think about using God's name rightly is in worship and prayer. Um, I think it, we need to see that irreverently referring to God in worship doesn't honor him. Um, please listen to all of those caveats. Irreverently referring to God in worship. It was a big problem in Jesus' day. When Jesus was teaching about prayer in the Sermon on the Mount, he said to all who are listening, and when you pray, don't keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they'll be heard because of their many words. So there were a group of people in Jesus' day who thought that the only way that you got anything out of God was by twisting his arm. And, and not only that, but 
you showed your kind of spiritual superiority by just going on and on and on and on. Now, you might find that hard to relate to because actually, for lots of us, our experience, as it were, on the prayer spectrum is at the other end. We find it hard to say anything at all. But it's still possible for us to speak irreverently or at least casually, flippantly in the way that we use God's name. I wonder how many of you have heard a prayer like this. I use this prayer as an example of prayers that I have prayed when I was younger. Um, Something like, um, God, yeah, Jesus, we just want your spirit, yeah, to just, God, fill this place and and Jesus to just be big and and Jesus and God and, and, and the Father, we want your spirit to come. Now, one level, please hear the nuance. All of us need to learn to pray. And our heavenly Father knows that. And he knows, and can I encourage you afresh, that there is nothing more encouraging on a Sunday morning before the service meets to hear the prayers of our young children as they pray to their Heavenly Father. I'm not saying adult levels for children. That's what I'm saying. But as we grow, are we thinking about how we grow in the way that we pray too? Because sometimes we need to grow in our discipline of of punctuation in prayer. And of not thinking that wherever there's a gap, what I'm going to do is just throw in one of God's names. I don't think that's honoring, hallowing God's name. Of course we should use his name when we pray. He calls us to, he commands us to, but we're to do so remembering whose name we're taking upon our lips. Fourthly and finally, I want us to see that that how we use God's name comes up in the way we speak about wisdom calls. So pushing agendas in God's name, as it were, is wrong. We've been thinking a lot about how we exercise our freedom, our liberty as Christians in the series in 1 Corinthians. And Paul has shown us that there are different elements that we need to bear in mind. We need to exercise our freedom thinking about what's good for ourselves and what is good for others and what will bring glory to God. But on top of all of that, in addition to all of that, the third commandment tells us something of how we speak about the freedom that we've just exercised. Now, in some churches, there would be quite a lot of talk about, well, God's told me this or or, God's told me that. And some of that is just a reference to how people genuinely feel the Spirit of God is leading them and prompting them in their life. And we want to be generous and gracious um, about that. But we also need to bear in mind that sometimes people use that language more strictly, if I can put it that way, more dogmatically. And even if you've not come from a church where that would regularly be said, you know, that The Lord said to me, X, Y, or Z. Each of us know in our Christian lives that it is possible to cloak a personal decision as the will of God. Such that 
in the way that we're speaking to each other, whether it's in your marriage or in a friendship or in conversations as a church family, we can sometimes cover over an exercise of our freedom and our liberty and be very dogmatic and say, basically, thus saith the Lord. I think that's misusing God's name. I think when we're in a circumstance where we have freedom and liberty to make a decision, we need to exercise that freedom and liberty well. And we need to do so honestly and transparently. We need to be able to talk to one another and say, look, here are the principles that I'm seeing God's word. This is how I think it would be wise to move forward. These are the reasons I I don't think we should be doing that. I think actually it would be better to be doing this. And uh, in all humility, this is where I think it would be best for us to go. That is a that's an honest, wise, humble way of exercising our freedom. What we don't want to do, not only because it would be unhelpful for others, but also for fear of breaking the third commandment, is to cover all of that with, because the Lord says, when there's nothing in his word that may. There's four very specific ways that hopefully have helped you to see that this commandment is much bigger than just not saying one word. But the problem as we unpack all of that is that we're reminded that all of us are guilty of breaking this commandment. And that's why we need to see how God's law works. Not only does God's law expose to us the ways that we break his commandment, but it also draws us to him to show us our need for him. And that's where we're going to finish this morning. I want you to see that God's name is our only hope for salvation. God's name is our only hope for salvation. Yes, the third commandment shows us how far we fall short, but we are to see that his name is also something to cherish. Not only something to be fearful of and not to misuse, but something that we need to cherish. So firstly, we cherish God's name by believing that Jesus is the only name by which we can be saved. And it's perhaps no clearer story that pictures that than Peter and John in Acts 3 and 4. They're, they're heading up uh, to pray in one of the prayer times. And on their way into Jerusalem, they pass a lame man by the side of the road who is begging for food and asking them for money. And do you remember what they say? Silver and gold have I none, but such as I have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Anybody know that one? Yeah, a few of you. The rest of you aren't going to bother now. I just put you off. Um, But that's what they say. In the name of Jesus Christ. I haven't got gold and silver, but I serve one who is so powerful that you can walk. That gets them in a lot of trouble. They're arrested. Then they're standing before all of the Jewish leaders the following day who are grilling Peter and John. How do you have this amount of power? How can you say anything like that about a human being? And what does Peter say? Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. So if you're here this morning and you have never yet repented of your sin, and trusted in Jesus Christ, believing in his name is the very first way you honor the name of God. It's the first way you come to respond to the third commandment. 
You come with all of your sin and all of the mess and you confess to the Lord Jesus Christ, I desperately need to be saved because my life's a mess and I see now who I am before you and there is no other God, no other religion, no other sacrifice I can make to know salvation but by trusting in Jesus. That's the first way that any of us can honor the name of God. Secondly, though, because it doesn't stop in the past, Christians need to live and long for his name to be lifted high. It's what Paul told the Colossians. Whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Pick that little phrase, in the name, sorry, it's not even up there, is it? In the name of Jesus Christ. Do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus. That doesn't just mean, it can't possibly mean that you just say thank you in your prayers before you eat your food and whenever you pray for something throughout the day. It can't possibly mean that. You think about the breadth of this third commandment and everything that we have seen of what it means. It means that as we live our lives every single day, we want to live and speak for Jesus in such a way that our lives are a reflection of who he is and of what he has done to transform who we are. So yes, it's going to change the way that you speak and I speak in ways that show our family and our neighborhood and our colleagues and our schoolmates that there is a name we hold so dear. We want them to hold it dear too. And we do that with great hope. I think it's important for us to end on hope. Because this commandment, as with so many of the commandments, reminds us how much of a mess our broken world is in. Think about the conversations that you have overheard over this past week. Or... TV programs, films, radio, any form of audio that has been in your life. How much blasphemy have you heard? How many times have you heard people just take a name we hold so dear and treat it as dirt? If we only thought about how this one commandment is being trampled underfoot, that would be quite discouraging wouldn't it? But this isn't the end of the story. And Jesus' name will be lifted high. Our great hope and comfort in the face of all of those moment-by-moment reminders of people who are not listening (laughs) to God's law, who before God saved us would have included us too, is that this is not how it will always be. You've got Philippians 2 in front of you. I want you to remember as we finish that Jesus obeyed his father all the way to the cross. He honored his father in the way that he used his name, in the way that he spoke of his father. He died upon the cross to take the punishment for the sin of every single one of us who has misused God's name. And he did all of that because Paul tells us, In verse 9 of chapter 2, Therefore, 
God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. What name is that? What name is above every name? Absolutely, Sonia. Keep reading on. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The one who revealed himself to Moses in a way that would otherwise have left Moses ignorant about who he was has shown himself to us perfectly in the person of his son. He is the exact representation of his being. And one day, the one who was so marred by all of the suffering that he took in the run-up to the cross to pay the penalty for our sin, we will behold him and see that he is the Lord. And not just that. Every tongue and every knee. So can I ask you this morning, are you going to do that willingly? Are you going to hear the gift of God giving us a name that reveals his holiness and yet beckons us to come because the only way that you can be right with God is by trusting in a son who has paid the penalty for all of your sin so that right now you can live in a joyful relationship with him and have no fear when he returns for you will behold his glory or right now Are you choosing to continue to misuse his name in all the breadth of that commandment? I hope as you were listening in on that bite-sized truth, you're reminded of the seriousness of shunning the commands of God. Don't stay there. Don't assume that all of this is just going to be something you can pick up later on in life. The Bible does not tell us how long we have personally, nor when Jesus will return. We need to be right for his return today. May it start by each of us trusting in the name of Jesus, which is the only name by which we may be saved.